Well, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> you know, Advent is beginning next week. Isn't that wild? I know. I'm excited for it. That you're a especially Christmassy type of person, though, aren't you? I can see that about you. You're already almost dressed a little bit Christmassy. You got, yeah. But it starts next week, so don't get too excited here. Next week is uh, the first Sunday of Advent. We normally do a four-week sermon series during that time. Whatever we're in the middle of, we set everything down, and we do kind of a standalone Advent series. This year, I would like to start a week early uh, and actually go a week late as well. There's been a little mini-series on my heart that I'd really like to begin today. And this series is called The Word Became Flesh. It's going to be a series about Christ and the Bible. We will come back to Exodus uh, in January, and we'll be at the spot in Exodus where they are beginning to talk about the instructions for the tabernacle. So I'm also excited about that, but here we go into a mini-series called The Word Became Flesh. This series is going to be about Christ and the Bible, and yes, my youngest daughter created our little logo for the series this time. My hope during this series is to increase our love for the Bible, God's Word. Uh, God's Word is sweeter than honey, and we're going to approach the Word of God from that perspective, uh, talking a lot about the Bible. My hope is also to increase our understanding of God's Word. It is so often misunderstood, and my uh, hope is also to increase our worship of Christ, Christ himself, who is the living and breathing Word of God in the flesh. And I also hope that this mini-series will be intensely practical, probably more uh, practical than we normally do on a Sunday morning. Uh, A little bit of each one of these sermons will feel a little bit like a Sunday school class. Uh, In the middle of each sermon, uh, I'd like to introduce certain Bible study skills or Bible study resources, as we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at resources that you can have at home that help with Bible study. Next week, we're going to look at major Bible themes that shape our understanding of Scripture and so on as we go through this series. This is a good time uh, to make a New Year's resolution or to be thinking about a New Year's resolution. Quite a few of you, probably five or six of you, have told me within the last month or so that you want to begin studying the Bible more. Uh, But there's often a feeling like, I'm not so sure where to start and how do I do it? Do I do the whole Bible in a year? Do I focus on one place? Do I use... Uh, a devotional, uh, how do I do all of this? And my hope is that as we go for the next six weeks until the end of December, that you will hear God speaking to you uh, about what it is that uh, you can do in the new year to begin studying the Bible in a fresh and new way. So the way we're going to do this this morning is look at Psalm 1. And then we're going to talk about some of the resources that would be helpful for studying Psalm 1 or any other section of Scripture, and then we will connect it to Christ at the end. So we're going to begin where Jerry just did in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. This psalm is about living a godly life. Let's look at the first two verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So what we see in this person, just in the first two verses of this classic psalm, is a person who is careful and thoughtful, careful and thoughtful. Now, when it says the man, blessed is the man, of course, we're talking about a person. So this applies to a kid, it applies to a lady, it applies to a man. Blessed is the person that thinks hard about how he lives his life, particularly in two areas that you see there in these first two verses. Two 
areas of focus for this person who is blessed. And the first has to do with his friends, and the second has to do with the way that he approaches the Bible. So let me just read it again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but, and here's the second, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So first of all, this person is choosy about his friends, does not hang out with sinners. Now, of course, all of us are sinners, and so what exactly does this mean? Hebrew uh, poetry uses a lot of parallelism, and we see this Uh, all the way through poetic books that are in the Old Testament. And we see that parallelism here. These are not three different kinds of people, seed of scoffers, way of sinners, and so on. It's not three different situations either. It's parallelism. We're getting at one basic thing here. The counsel of the wicked, way of sinners, seed of scoffers, is referring to the kind of person that totally rejects God. Is just not interested in God at all, particularly God's instruction. So in this psalm, the godly person steers clear of that kind of a person, steers clear of somebody who is not interested, who actually scoffs, makes fun of God's instruction. Ephesians 5 is a good cross-reference if you're looking for a New Testament place that discusses something like Psalm 1. All of Ephesians 5 is good for this. I'm going to read you just two verses from the middle of the chapter of Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is a discerning life. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. It is a discriminating life. The Christian is one who walks carefully and thinks about how he's living. And that word walk, we see it in a lot of places. It's used in ancient times as it is today. It's just talking about your lifestyle, the way that you live your life. And the Christian is careful about the people that shape uh, our way of life. Now, the psalm mentions a scoffer, which isn't a word that we commonly use. So it's one of those things that even though it's translated into English, we have to translate it again because you probably have never called anybody a scoffer unless maybe you're sitting in the back row. Some of you guys might have used that word from time to time. But most of us have not used that word in the last uh, few decades. And so, uh, so what does scoffer mean? What is somebody who scoffs? Somebody who scoffs is somebody that just dismisses the Bible. Okay? It's a, a scoffer might be a very nice person, very intelligent, very creative, uh, interesting kind of a person might be somebody that, that makes you laugh really hard. It could be a very, very good person, but this person thinks that the Bible and thinks that the church are kind of silly. And that's what a scoffer is. This person is somebody that when they're talking, when you're talking about the Bible, when you're thinking about the Bible or when the Bible comes up uh, in a discussion on television or something like that, it's like, oh, you know, that's somebody who's scoffing toward the Bible. Uh, Now, of course, these kinds of people are going to be in our lives. God wants us to be salt and light out there. And I think our lives are made much richer by filling our lives with all kinds of people that disagree with us on every conceivable subject. And so uh, the godly person isn't the sort of person that fortresses himself off from anybody that might disagree with you. And if you see somebody that disagrees with the Bible coming along, you say, oh, it's a scoffer and you run the other way. That's not what we're discussing here. The important thing has to do with influence. And a lot of churches get this wrong, right? A lot of churches just lock everything down and we're not going to make friends or shake hands or even speak of those who are outside these walls. 
And I, and I think that's a very unhealthy way to live. God wants us out there, and he wants us loving people. I think it's very appropriate to have friends from all different walks of life, to have people in your home from all different walks of life. The important thing here has to do with influence. God wants his word to shape our lives, which is what we see in the second part here that we haven't gotten to yet. He wants his word to shape our lives, our thoughts, our opinions. Christians should not be surrounded by non-Christians that influence how we live. This has to do with influence of lifestyle, influence of the way that we walk. Do not let your feelings about life or your family or your business be shaped by people who do not love the word of God. Again, you might have friends from all different walks of life, and that's wonderful. Uh, I have a couple of friends that are, that are not believers, but that uh, are close friends, people that I like, people that I enjoy. Uh, but when we're talking, there's kind of an obvious awareness that we both have that our lives at the core are different. We're friends. We're friends. It's not like I, I won't talk to him and he won't talk to me. We even talk about personal things. Uh, but there's kind of an awareness between us. It's almost like we're from different countries, even though we live in the same city. But there's a feeling inside us that, you know, our lives are different. Our homes are different. The things that we care the very most about are different. And so we might have lots of different friends. Skin color doesn't matter. Wealth doesn't matter. Popularity doesn't matter. None of these things matter when we pick our friends. What matters is that the people who influence our lives are Bible people. And that ultimately, the thing that's influencing our life is the Bible. God wants his word to influence the way that we live and the way that we act and the way that even we feel about the world around us. He wants the Bible to shape that, not people who scoff at the Bible. A lot of unhappiness comes from choosing to do life with the wrong people. And all the people said, right, some of you more forcefully than others, you've learned the hard way that, that attaching your life to somebody who does not love God deeply can result in a lot of difficulty. Uh, so this person is one who's choosy and careful and discriminating about the people that influences core. He's able to interact with a wide range of people. Uh, he's a blessing to a wide range of people, even people who hate the Bible. He can be a blessing to those kinds of people. But he's careful about who influences what happens in his home, what happens in his business, what happens in his heart, what happens in his family, and so on. This person is also careful about the Bible. And we see this in verse 2. It says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So he's doing two things he, uh, in regard to the word. He's delighting and he's meditating on the law. And sometimes the law means literal laws, like we've been going through in the book of Exodus. We've spent a period of time looking at actual laws in the Old Testament. And sometimes that word, when it's used in the Old Testament, means law, like that, a literal law. But just as often, when the Bible uses the word law, it just means God's instruction, in the same way that we use the word Bible. Okay, So an Old Testament believer wouldn't have said, oh, I love my Bible. They just didn't speak that way. We talk that way. But an Old Testament would have, would have said, I love the law. I love God's law. And they meant the same thing that we, mean, that we mean when we say, man, I just love the Bible. And so that's what this person is all about here in Psalm 1. This is a Bible person. Uh, and he's doing two things in relation to the Bible. He's delighting in the Bible, 
and he is meditating on the Bible. Those two things come out of this passage. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So let's look at each of those things, delighting in the Bible and meditating on the Bible. Uh, My English teacher in high school uh, was bored by literature. So you would think that this person wouldn't be teaching literature, but he was. And I remember uh, when we went through the taming of the shrew. So our class, uh, our class time was uh, sitting in a big circle listening to this man read in monotone the taming of the shrew. That was the class. Now, keep in mind, it had already been assigned earlier in the week, so we had already read it. And now here we are, and we're listening to this dude destroy the taming of the shrew, but none of us thought of it that way. We just assumed that Shakespeare was boring and dead and dull, and this poor sap has to teach it in our uh, curriculum. Uh, and uh, the, the other thing about this particular guy is he didn't seem to like me very much, but, um, but that may not have, uh, have been his problem. But uh, Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> may, not, may not have been his problem. He may have been a discriminating Psalm 1 type person. Uh, the Lord got a hold of my life after high school. Uh, so anyhow, but uh, anyhow, so he didn't really like me and he didn't like literature. So what was my opinion of literature, do you think? Yeah, I didn't read any literature. That's not what I'm going to do, hanging out with my friends on the weekend or things like this. We didn't whip out Steinbeck together, no, because our only introduction to literature was bad. Uh, but then, you know, I married a very intelligent wife who had had an excellent education. She was always talking about her, the books. She was always making reference to books, and so... Uh, when I was in my late 20s, I decided to read her copy, and when I started reading, I didn't make any guarantee that I was going to finish this thing. I thought, well, we'll just start, and I started reading Crime and Punishment. This was the first piece of literature that I'd ever read in my life, and I was in my late 20s. I'd never read anything like that before. Of course, it became my favorite book, uh, and, and, and after that, I read Anna Karenina, um, so I kind of got my start in the, the Russians. But, uh, but anyway, I read Anna Karenina, and that became my favorite book. So if you were to ask me, so what's your favorite book? Well, I would say, well, it's Anna Karenina or Crime and Punishment, and you would never know that those are the only two books that I'd ever read. <laughs> that and Tom Clancy was pretty much as far as I had gone. So anyhow, that bad teacher nearly ruined me for literature my whole life. Uh, and thankfully, um, I was able to make up what was lacking as an adult, um, Now, we've all had good teachers. We've all had bad teachers um, uh, at high school, college, university, um, and other places, church, and that sort of a thing. Now, teachers go to seminars, and if you're a public school teacher, you've been to these ad nauseum. You go to all kinds of seminars in order to learn classroom management skills and all kinds of other techniques, Um, but we all know the difference between a good teacher and a bad teacher, right? It's not how many seminars this person has been to. It has to do with passion. Is this person excited about what she's teaching? You know, an excitement and passion for a subject matter can make up for a lot of techniques that you may not know because you're gathering people around like you cannot believe what's happening. What do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And that's true for math and science and literature and and drama. My, My favorite teacher was my drama teacher in high school. She loved it and she drew us around herself and she drew us around these subject matters. Does the teacher love the subject? 
does this person get excited during class about what we're talking about, if it's history or whatever it may be? Now, that is true with Christians as well. It's true with teachers, but it's also true with Christians. This Psalm 1 person isn't just somebody that agrees with the Bible. This isn't somebody that just goes through the doctrinal statement of our denomination and says, yes, I agree with that, and that's kind of my extent of my emotional interaction with the word of God. No, this person, it doesn't just agree with the Bible, but this person loves the Bible. This person delights in the word of God, and that makes all the difference in the world. Psalm 66, 2 says, this is God speaking, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We literally wrote that verse on the wall out there so that you see it every time you walk in here. This is hopefully a place where you don't just hear some kind of academic presentation about the trivia of the word, but hopefully you interact with a bunch of people who have been rocked deeply by the word of God, who who love the word of God, who are almost sometimes afraid in opening the word of God because God is speaking and who knows what he's going to say and how he's going to get a hold of us and where he's going to lead us. This is the word of God. Well, now what if you are the kind of person who wants to delight in God's word But you just honestly don't. You're just sitting there going, okay, I I agree. That would be great. I would love to delight in the law of the Lord. I would love to love the Bible, um, but I just honestly don't, okay? And we're not going to take a show of hands, but I would bet that more than half of you are coming from a perspective like that. You agree with the Bible. You would like to love the Bible. You've never had a knee-knocking, trembles-at-my-word kind of experience before the Bible, and you would like to. So what should you do? Now, preachers can go in a lot of different directions here, right? Many of you have been to churches where at this point I would shift into the mode of saying, look, your Bible is dusty, isn't it? And it is unacceptable that there is so much dust. You know, if a few of us are reading a book right now about, and the author made the uh, argument that if every American Christian were to blow the dust off of his Bible at the exact same moment, it would be worse than the, than the, than the dust storm than the dust bowl or something like this. So that's not the direction I'm going. That's not the direction I'm going here. I'm not going to say, look, you know, you really ought to get your act together spiritually and read the Bible more. Uh, that's not the, the way that I'm going to go here because I, I think that the word of God should be read not out of some kind of a task list obligation, but the word of God should be read because it's a word of God and it's sweeter than honey and it's better than a treasure you might find buried in your backyard. It is an awesome, powerful revelation from God to you. And when we read it, we have this incredible encounter with God. So my knee-jerk reaction here, and I probably should put a little bit of pressure because sometimes I go too far on the other side and a discipline is good, especially if your life is a disaster. Discipline is good and we probably need to talk more about that. But really what I want to do is remind you about what the Bible really is. This is an amazing thing that God, the God, the the creator of heaven and earth, the the one who created you, the one who knows all, the all-powerful, good and gracious God has actually communicated to us and has things to say to us in this word. And he's promised to give us his Holy Spirit so that when we open this, we will understand what we're reading. God is talking to us. And it's an amazing thing. So here's my suggestion to you. If you are one of those who may have raised your hand, and uh, if, if you were to be asked, do you, you know, do you like the word of God, but you don't love it? Uh, so here's, here's what, we, what I might suggest. And the first thing is to just pray. 
Just tell God, hey, I, I want to delight in your word, and I, and I don't. I, I, you know, I'm sorry about that, and I don't. And I, I want and need your Holy Spirit to get something going in my heart so that, so that I delight in your word. I want to be that kind of a person. That's the place that I would start. Don't, don't be all ashamed and, oh, Lord, I'm horrible and all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm saying. Just pray to the Lord and just say, I would like to delight in your word. And I think I can say this to all of us, right, that we all ought to pray some prayer about loving God's word more. We can all love God's word more. We can all be deep, more deeply rocked by God's word. So that would be the first thing is to pray. The second thing that I would say is to prepare to work really hard. Prepare to work really hard. I've used the illustration several times here that the word of God is very often like lighting a campfire in the rain. If you have not delighted in the word of God, it is going to be unlikely that you'll just pick up a a verse and read it here and uh, all of a sudden have this massive experience that's emotional and and life-changing and all of that. That's very unlikely to happen because it's a little bit like in, in your heart, it's a little bit like in your life, that there's a, a rainstorm and everything's cold and you've got a little matchbook here and you're trying to light some stuff and it's a little bit damp. It takes time and it takes work. Now, if we do this correctly, if we learn some techniques for how to get this done and if we're determined and we spent the time that we need, then, you know, in an hour or two of the campfire, then what we're going to have is something that might even be too hot, right? And, and you've got to back away from it. So it's not always going to be just this little tiny thing that you're hoping you get something, a little, little tiny wind comes through and it goes out and you've got to start over. But prepare for really hard work. Many of you remember Rose Jug and when she uh, became a Christian here at Cornerstone and uh, as a new convert uh, to Christianity, um, she was surrounded by resources. Uh, so you would go over to her house. She had this big desk. And she had her Bible dictionary, and she had a little whole Bible commentary, and she had a couple of study Bibles. And you would, you would walk into her home, and h- how old was Rose? She, was, she had to be in her 80s, right? You would walk in, and she was the most precious lady, really came to understand the gospel and love Jesus for the first time in her 80s. And so here you walk into her home, and she, she is working hard to understand the word of God. Her bookshelf was not filled with all the silliness that comes out of uh, uh, Christian bookstores these days and uh, have the happy life that you've always wanted to have if you just pray a couple of times or whatever. Jesus wants you to be the happiest person. Jesus wants you to have everything you've ever wanted. Rose didn't have any of that crud. Rose had a Bible and a a couple of them, different translations, and she had a dictionary so that when she read it, she understood what she was reading and all this kind of stuff. So I would say, be like Rose Jug, you know, get yourself outfitted and ready to work hard. Um, it, is, it is hard to delight in something that we don't understand. It's hard to delight in something that we don't understand. And the word of God is literature. The word of God includes God's thoughts. And this stuff is not uh, always the low hanging fruit. And we've got to work hard at getting at the good stuff. R.C. Sproul says, here then is the real problem of our negligence. We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it is dull and boring, but because it is work. It is work. I would say listening to sermons is the same type of thing. 
uh, we need to not be passive listeners to the word. We need to not be passive hearers of the word, but actively working to remember and study and understand what God is communicating to us. Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, one of the old Puritans, he said, when you come to hear the word, you must possess your souls with what it is you are going to hear. Possess your souls with what it is you're going to hear. We don't want the word of God to go in one one ear and out the other, uh, like there's just a tube in there and it just kind of goes right through. But what we want is we want to grab onto that stuff and savor it and ruminate on it and make sure that we understand exactly what God is communicating to us. When Paul was writing to Thessalonica, he was praising the Thessalonican, uh, the Thessalonians, he was praising them uh, for their attitude towards Scripture. He said, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you as believers. So delighting in God's word, it requires prayer, it requires work requires the Holy Spirit, and this is what we're after. We're after a heart that delights in the Word of God. The other thing that this person does is meditates. So back in Psalm 1, this person is meditating on the law of God day and night. Now, this is not Eastern meditation. The word meditation can mean a couple of different things. Meditation, usually when it's used uh, in our culture now, Uh, When we're talking about somebody who's meditating in a religious context, what we mean is that that person is emptying his mind and kind of sitting in a quiet room trying to uh, empty their mind and and that kind of a thing. And that's not at all what what the Bible means when it talks about meditation. Uh, Biblical meditation is more like, uh, you might even use this in a business context, like I'm going to meditate on some of the things that I need to do later today or something. There's content to it. I'm thinking hard. Meditating has to do with taking a section of scripture, maybe a paragraph or a chapter of scripture or a sermon that's been based in scripture that you've recently heard and thinking about it. It just means thinking hard about some propositional concept that you have found in the word of God. And so this Psalm 1 person is a thinker about the Bible. That's what the word meditate means here. He's a hard thinker about the Bible. And you can see here that we're not just talking about having a 10, 20, or even 30-minute devotion at the beginning of every day. You know, I'm not telling you, you know, you need to get up early and you need to have a 20-minute devotion every day and then go about your day. What this scripture says is that he's meditating day and night. We named our son Joshua after Joshua chapter 1 that contains this verse. God is trying to reassure Joshua because he's freaking out as he's looking at this country that he's supposed to go in and Moses, his mentor, has just died and he's thinking, I don't know about, I don't know about this. And what God says to him in Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Really similar to Psalm chapter one. Blessed is the man who does this kind of thing, meditates on the word of God day and night. Blessings come from God to those who meditate on the Bible day and night. And I wonder, you know, have you tried this kind of meditation? I would encourage you to try this kind of meditation. Pick a section of the Bible. 
pick a paragraph, pick a chapter, pick a book, pick a sermon that's been based in Scripture, and pick a section of the Bible. Use some resources to make sure that you really understand what's going on there. And then think about it throughout the day. It's not, it's not complicated. It's not a, a hard thing to do. You may write the verse on a yellow sticky note and put it in your car so that every time you get in your car, you see it there. Or you might make it your screensaver so that every time you turn on your computer or maybe the, the screensaver of your phone or something like that, every time you turn it on, you're reminded of that scripture. Lots of different ways. You, know, you can take some favorite scriptures and uh, write them beautifully or type them out beautifully, frame them, put them around your life so that they're in your home and that you're in, in your workspace or if, if you're allowed to do that and that kind of a thing. Uh, to surround your life with the word of God so that you're meditating on it throughout the day. Now, what's the result of all of this? We get back to the very first word of the book of Psalms, blessed. The very first word of this psalm, the very first word of the book of Psalms, blessed is the person who is choosy about, who influences his life, and the person who loves the Bible. Blessed means happy. You know, we could translate it as happy, but that word might be understood in a, in, a, in a less important or a less intense way. So think about, like, if God were to be behind that word happy. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about happy, <laughs> not just like happy birthday type of thing. We're talking about really happy is the person who has been shaped by the word of God and who is choosy about his friends. A uh, couple of different aspects to being blessed, and one of those is joy. I'm just really joyful because of what God has done in my life. The other, per, the other aspect to being blessed is, is gratitude. I just know I, I've been blessed. God has been really good to me. So there's a couple of aspects to this blessed happiness, joy, and gratitude. And so here we just see some beautiful poetic descriptions of this blessedness. In verse 3 of Psalm 1, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Now, let me just pause here for a second, which I hesitate to do in the middle of poetry, but still, uh, the wicked will not stand in judgment. That doesn't mean that they won't go to judgment. Of course, they will go to judgment. We see other sections of scripture that make it clear that everybody goes before the white throne of judgment. The issue here is that sinners don't stand there because they are so overwhelmed and flattened by the experience that they do not even stand in the presence of the Lord at the end of all things. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So this is a life that has been shaped by the word, not by worldly people, but by the word. This is a blessed life. And hard times come, and we all know that. The full brunt of evil might hit our lives, but we do not wither because God has said so many things in this place that get us through. Now, let me just give you a few practical suggestions here in regard to references that you might have around your house. I think that everybody ought to have some kind of a study Bible. And this is one that we happen to sell out there. We don't make any money off it. Um, but this is one that we happen to sell in the lobby. It's the ESV Study Bible. But there's lots of study Bibles out there. There's another one that I really like called the Literary Study Bible. 
So for the ESV study Bible, and a lot of study Bibles like that, you'll have notes at the bottom of the page that explain difficult verses. In the literary study Bible, it, teaches, it, it uh, explains the Bible as a piece of literature, so that rather than notes at the bottom of the page, you have introductions to sections that are explaining some of the, uh, the behind-the-scenes uh, uh, perspectives of, of literary analysis that make it a lot easier to understand the Bible. And I tend to use these a lot. In fact, I use this one especially a lot in preparing sermons. So these are two really good resources, ESV Study Bible, the Literary Study Bible. They're both also available online. Another thing you might have, and I would strongly recommend that you have, is a good dictionary. And I don't mean an English dictionary because you know that the, English, uh, that the Bible was written in Hebrew and in Greek, so what you need to know is what the Bible is communicating. So when the Bible uses a word like justified, you need to know what, what uh, theologians say about that word, not necessarily uh, what an English dictionary says. So English dictionaries are great, but here are a couple of just really good, affordable dictionaries you've seen in my office. I've got seven, eight, nine volume sets of dictionaries in the Greek and the Hebrew. You don't need something like that. Uh, but uh, this is a good one. It's called Mounts's Complete Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words. It's a big title, uh, but you just have a nice different def- definition of, uh, of important words in the Bible. And then this is another short one. It's called the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms. And this is another good one. I'll have all of these books on the front of the stage here if you want to look at them. But just very, uh, very small, short definitions of important Bible terms. So having a good study Bible, having a good Bible dictionary, and then one more thing that I want to recommend is a Bible handbook. Bible handbook is usually about this size, and this is a dorky old edition. Oh, I apologize for that, but the, con- the content of this book is, is really good. This is Riken's Bible Handbook, but the Holman uh, Publishing Company makes a Bible handbook also, Holman's Bible Handbook, and it's also an excellent one. What a handbook does is helps you to study the Bible, gives you introductions to books, tells you the basic structure of a book. So let's say that you want to study the book of Philippians, uh, and uh, what you might do is go to the handbook first, and you might have a very brief, just a few pages, explanation of the basic structure of Philippians who wrote it, who the person is writing to, why they're writing, what the main subjects are that are discussed. And that way, when you jump into it, it's going to make a lot more sense. Uh, And I would compare that, getting back to Shakespeare. I'd talk about Shakespeare again. It's really difficult to pick up a Shakespeare play and not know anything about it and enjoy it. All right? Because uh, if you don't know who's talking and why they're talking, and is this a comedy or a tragedy, and where is it set, and who are these characters, and I don't understand what's going on, there might be some mythical backstory that's important for us to know, and we just don't know those things. But if you can get an introduction to it, even just a few paragraphs, well, here's what this is about. It's a classic play. It's about this, and it's about that, and here's the backstory that everybody would have known when they originally saw it. Well, it'll just help you to understand it a lot better. Now, the Bible is also literature. It was written thousands of years ago, and we are just not smart enough to know what's going on unless unless people help us. Now, if I'm out in the middle of nowhere and I've never had contact uh, with, uh, with a Christian and somebody were to give me a Bible, yes, God could communicate a lot of things to me because there are a lot of things that are very understandable here in Scripture. But when we want to go deep, when we really want to understand what God is saying to us, then we need, we need help. 
uh, and uh, these references can be a lot of help to us. You can save yourself some bookshelf space by purchasing Bible software, software like Logos Bible software. It's expensive, uh, but it's the sort of thing that gives you all of these kinds of resources right on your computer and even on your phone or on your iPad. And I think these are important things to have. Now, this seems like a good time for me to um, show you a picture of some of the Africans that have just recently graduated from our pastor training uh, program. Uh, this all happened last week, and uh, Matt Furr is, was our trainer, good friend of mine, a pastor in Chicago. And uh, so here are the guys, and they're getting ready to go into their graduation ceremony. And uh, there's a whole bunch of them, 25 of them, who graduated from the program just last Friday. Uh, they brought their families to, to the town, and there were flowers everywhere. And uh, just uh, kind, of a, kind of a bummer to have missed that. But we had another trainer, and it didn't seem prudent for, for me to spend the money to go all the way there just to be with their graduation. So that's Matt Furr. Uh, just a really precious pastor from uh, from the Chicago area uh, who's been doing this pastor training with me. And then uh, that's uh, Pastor Benson uh, on the right there. And uh, Pastor Benson is kind of a pastor to pastors. Uh, he doesn't have an official position, but because he's just, uh, just an incredible Christian stud, uh, just an awesome guy, uh, loves the Lord, and is just always like completely... Uh, bouncing out of himself just with, with joy in the Lord. Uh, every time he sees you, I'm so happy, I'm so happy. Uh, and he's probably said that phrase a million times in his life. I mean, imagine if you said that a million times in your life. I've heard him say it a thousand times. I'm so happy. And then he'll finish it with whatever he's happy about at that particular moment. But he has hosted uh, this entire uh, process that we've done for all of these years and uh, just a really, really good man, and we've seen seven new groups begin from the one that we started, which was our goal, was multiplication. We said, we'll be here for three years, and then we're gone, because we wanted to make it really clear to them uh, that this was, this was on them to really sit up straight, figure this process out, and then take the ball forward. Uh, so we've just hired a Kenya leader. His name's John Sere, and he's in charge of seven new groups, and as Americans now, we will be able to see them for a couple of days a year just to check in with them, make sure that they're still uh, doctrinally sound and remembering the principles that we taught. Uh, but it's, a, it's really a wonderful thing. Now, none of the men there can use any of these resources. None of, none of these men can use any of these resources. And I'm not telling you that to make you feel guilty. Uh, but... Uh, that's why our pastor training process takes three years. These men are just as smart as any of us are, and these men are probably more godly uh, than a lot of us are. I'm often very uh, challenged by, uh, by their faith and their joy and their contentment and, and that sort of a thing, the fellowship that they have. Um, but, you know, they live in mud huts, and their homes don't have electricity or running water. If you can't buy books, how do you preach the word of God? How do you study the Word of God? You can't go to seminary. You can't afford one of these, let alone a stack of them or a computer where you'd put all of them on there. So what do you do? You make your own. You make your own books. So we put them in groups with daily homework for three years and monthly meetings so that they make their own cross-reference works. They make their own treasury of Scripture knowledge. Uh, we tell them the most important words to study, and they get together in groups, and they basically create journals together uh, with thick cross-references in the major themes of the Bible. I mean, if you don't have a 
a concordance, you've got to make your own concordance. Um, if you don't uh, understand what the whole Bible says about atonement, you've got to read everything that the Bible says about atonement because there's no resource to help you do that. So these books are precious. These books are, are amazing. We live in a time and in a place where uh, we have these rich resources and we probably forget how precious they are. Uh, yes, they're expensive. They are expensive. That's probably $150 of material right there. Um, and, uh, and so I realize that that's an investment. Uh, but uh, uh, our goal is to understand what God is saying to us. God has spoken to us in his word. He said some things to us that he wants us to understand. He wants us to hear. And we do have a tendency to go to the sections of scripture that we're familiar with. We go to the Psalms. We go to a couple of the epistles. We go to maybe some of the gospels uh, because they're more easily understandable. And we, we kind of uh, stay close to the shore in our little tiny boat. And, uh, but God has said a lot more whole sections of scripture that we may not have uh, have read before and it's very important for us to take advantage of the incredible resources that we've been given so lavishly blessed with these things and to jump into the deep end of what God is saying to us because this is how he speaks this is how he speaks a few times in history he has sent angels to deliver a message um but those were for really big moments like the virgin birth. Has anybody had that kind of an experience? Anybody had a virgin birth experience where an angel has come? No, that isn't how God normally communicates. Sometimes he gives impressions and, and sort of guidance feelings or even dreams and that kind of a thing. But, you know, nobody gets to say, thus saith the Lord anymore. Nobody gets to say, thus saith the Lord anymore. Our sin and our psychology and uh, our desires and all those kinds of things influence a lot of those feelings and dreams. Uh, this is where God communicates clearly and truly to us. The scripture is closed. There won't be any more books written, and this is all that God has to say to us until the second coming. And if we hope to make good choices and live happy lives, we've got to understand the words in this book. See, the Bible is worthy of study. I'm not saying you're a bad Christian if your Bible is dusty. Stop being a bad Christian. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is Psalm 119, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. We read and we study God's word and we let it shape our lives because God is speaking to us and we want to understand what he's saying. Jen Wilkins, who just wrote an excellent book called Women of the Word, uh, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Our Minds. I'd recommend it to everybody, not just the ladies in our congregation. Um, she uses a lot of illustrations about diapers and laundry and things like that, and, and it'd probably be good for us guys to read a book and have an experience like women usually do uh, uh, with nonfiction uh, Christian books that are written by men. Anyway, Jen Wilkins, she said this, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. The word of God is the place to behold God. This word, this Bible, this little book is the place where we behold God. Sometime we're going to get to see him face to face. But the way to make eye contact with God now is in these words. 
reading, savoring, meditating on these words. And this book is like any other. This book is unlike any other book because it's living and active. It's not just a great piece of literature. It's not just a letter from a father that loves us. These words are living and active. We're engaging with a person when we read these words. John chapter 1, verse 14, we'll look at this in depth next week, says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. The word became flesh and lived and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the walking, talking revelation of God. His life displays God's ways described in God's word because he is God's word because he is God. There is 100% overlap between the words in this book and the life of Jesus Christ. He lives out exactly the kind of life that we see here in Psalm 1, a blessed man who has been influenced most deeply by the word of God. 100% overlap between the word and his life. And that's what he's looking for in our lives too. To read this word and to embody this word. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What we're looking for here is to let his word take on flesh again in this place that we would be people that walk and talk like children of the king. So a life shaped by the word of God is a blessed life. It's a happy life. It's a sustained life. You remember the words of amazing grace, this this great verse that says, The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Well, he's promised good to me, and we read about those promises here. We read about his attributes here. We read about his glory his sovereignty over all things. We read about his plan here. We read about his presence with us, even through the valley of the shadow of death. We read about his kindness. We read about his people. We read about his work in history and his work in the future. This is where we find out about that stuff, and it deeply changes the way that we act and think. These great truths are meant to shape our lives, so let me finish with these words from Psalm 37. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law, of the, God, the law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Let's close. God in heaven, we thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you for speaking to us about yourself I pray that you would help us to understand your word and to delight in your word. And I pray for each one here this morning that you would deeply shape and influence the way that we live and think by the words in this book. I pray, Lord, as we're starting a new little mini-series, that you would work in our hearts, help us to grow in our understanding. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.